Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you today from Toronto, Canada. Today is Thursday, April the 6th, 2023. And my last podcast actually was with Virginia Latoura Jeker, where we talked about the sailing permit. And believe it or not, there are still some laws on the books in the United States that says that an alien, meaning a non-citizen, cannot even leave the United States without getting a tax clearance from the IRS. This is, of course, never enforced and a law that's 100 years old. But it is on the books. And today we're going to talk a little bit about... Um, sort of an automatic way uh, that the United States enforces payment for a certain kind of tax owed. In other words, this is withholding. In other words, we're going to keep the money in the country and let the person leave rather than keep the person in the country until the tax is paid. So this is definitely more modern. And my guest today is Julie Lepore, who I met recently and has a truly fascinating uh, enterprise, for lack of a better word, going on in Florida, where she helps Canadians, largely Canadians, and other kinds of non-U.S. citizens and residents with a very specific problem, which arises when they are ready to sell that real estate they own in Florida. So uh, we'll discuss this during the podcast. Welcome, Julie. How are you today? I am great. Thanks, Sean, for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, the pleasure is mine, and this is this will be fascinating, and also I think of tremendous practical utility uh, for you know for a lot of people because uh, there's a lot of Canadians who love Florida, and interestingly, also there's a lot of Canadians who also seem to love owning U.S. real estate in a personal capacity. Uh, so before we uh, get into the nuts and bolts of how this withholding tax works, um, introduce yourself a little bit. And, you know, how did you get into this anyway? I mean, this is a fascinating niche you've got. Um, I, I kind of fell into it. So, you know, my background um, out of high school was real estate related. So I worked for a title company and then I worked for um, national mortgage lenders. And so I've just been around real estate, um, the real estate industry, my whole my whole life, it feels like. Um, so about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, I started working um, at a accounting firm that specialized in um, providing services for foreign investors. And um, it started off innocently enough. And um, but I was just paying attention and listening and kind of worked my way up the 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 rungs, if you will, Um and ended up running a company or a division there where we focus solely on providing FERPTA related services for foreign investors. So um, I guess I got my foot in the door through the real estate industry, but um, it's just such a fascinating topic to me. And I just, I truly enjoy it. So um, just kind of took it and run right. with it. Of course it arises only in the context of a real estate sale. Uh, by uh, somebody who's neither a U.S. citizen nor a resident. Uh, of right. The so this is, uh, you know, this is really a real estate related issue with sort of a tax aspect to it, I suppose. Not so much tax with a real estate, I think, because, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, have been aware of this thing for ages, um, have even discussed this with people in a general way for ages. But, uh, you know, it's funny, you don't 
you know, don't feel any particular bond to this particular issue at all. So, uh, you know, no personal experience with it, I guess, at least directly. So, you know, I, I really appreciate your joining me today to talk about this. Now, you did use a word there a minute ago that is likely to begins with the word F. You use the word FERPTA. And, you know, one thing we know is that uh, anything beginning with F in U.S. tax lingo probably means trouble. So what what does what does FERPTA stand for anyway? So it's uh, it stands for the Foreign Investment in Real Property Tax Act, F-I-R-P-T-A. So, so the first the... is foreign, right? Say that again. So the first word and that the, the first word in FERPTA is foreign. Correct. Now, that always means trouble when it comes yeah, to foreign, foreign investment. I call it the dreaded F word of real estate. <laughs> okay. Well, we have all kinds of other dreaded F words for people. We have F bar, we have FATCA, but you know, the seminal F word is foreign and here they're upfront about it. So foreign investment, real property tax act. Now, in a very, very general sense, what exactly does that do source-wise? I mean, what does it do for the United States? Um, well, it, it ensures that when a foreigner sells real estate here, anything that's considered real property, that the U.S. government's going to get their fair share of taxes one way or the other. So they enforce this They enforce this withholding at the time of sale. And okay. uh, so, so what it really does is that normally... Um, you know, when you sell something, you have a capital gain. Normally, the gain is sourced to the country where the seller lives, but not right. this. So what it does is it's basically a carve out to the general rule of gain source to the country of residence, I guess. Right. In other words, yes, this by God, the purpose of this is you sell real estate in the United States and we want our pound of flesh. Right. Correct. All right. And without getting overly technical real estate certainly includes the condo, the small bungalow, all these things that Canadian investors would buy, or even the large estate where the wealthy mm -hmm. go to spend the winter. Anything like that would be caught by this, right? Correct. Okay. So, so if a Canadian were to sell this property, okay, um, you know, we know the purpose of FERPA is to ensure that it's U.S. source and therefore taxable by the U.S. Mm -hmm. So firm that bottom line significance of this is that leaving aside withholding or anything else, a Canadian who owns prop real estate in his or her own name, who sells that in the United States, will be subject to U.S. taxation on the gain. Can you confirm that? I can confirm that, yes. All right. So absolutely. So we know that there's subject to tax. So this FERPTA thing is really a way to withhold, sort of withhold part of the part or all of the tax owing by the U.S. government to ensure that they get paid. Otherwise, what would prevent that Canadian from scurrying over the border with all the money? Right? Exactly. All right. Creates a all nice, right. uh, natural checks and balance. Okay. So in other words, uh, the way it works is, you know what, we're going to withhold a portion of the proceeds of the sale. And can you confirm that's uh, a percentage of the gross amount of the sale and not the profit? It is. 
It's currently the the uh, rate of withholding is 15% of the gross proceeds unless an exception applies. Okay, let's not worry so much about the exception. Let's make sure the general principle is understood. So, uh, you know, the reason people go to law school is because they can't do math. Okay, so I'm going to give a real simple example here. So if you were to sell something for $100,000, if there is such a thing, okay. There's not, but... <laughs> Yeah, we have to work. Remember, okay, I'm mathematically challenged here. But let's hypothetically, if you sold it for a hundred thousand dollars, how much would that withholding be? Fifteen thousand. Okay, so in other words, on the day of sale, the Canadian who sold the property for a hundred thousand gets eighty-five. Is that right? Correct. The U.S. government, the Internal Revenue Service, gets fifteen. Now. You know, it's one thing to say that FERPA enforces the tax on the Canadian, but who enforces that the money actually arrives to the Internal Revenue Service? How does that work? Well, the um, they hold the they the rule is is that the payer of the income um, would be the withholding agent, and so in a real estate transaction, the payer of the income is the buyer. So um, the government charges the buyer with the responsibility to determine if their seller is foreign and then to hold back the appropriate amount, which in, in this example would be 15%. And then that money has to be sent to the U.S. government within 20 days of the 20 closing. Days. 20 days. I assume that like everything else, there must be a penalty associated with non-compliance. Is that true? That is absolutely true. So um, if the money is received... On day 21 or later, they will assess a failure to pay, a failure to file, and then the interest starts compounding daily. Daily. I've heard that before with U.S. taxation. Okay. <laughs> uh, not that it matters hugely, but it's just sort of my, uh, you know, interest in this stuff. How bad are the penalties on this one? Um. So usually um, the failure to pay is usually four and a half percent of whatever the withholding is and it maxes out at five months and then the failure to file is a half a percent time you know based on the on the withholding amount and it there is no maximum so it will keep accruing every month that it's late um i guess the overall the overall penalties cap at 25 percent, but the interest never stops so until oh the God. payment is actually made, the, the interest will continue to accrue. Unbelievable. So you actually need somebody with a degree in actuarial science to figure out the, <laughs> the penalty. That's just so typical of, you know, of U.S. laws. You can understand there is a penalty and that's horrible. By God, how it works is, you know, you need a supercomputer to do it. Okay. But anyway, so the main point is, uh, what did you say, 20 days? It has to be sent within 20, 20 calendar days, not 20 business days. Okay, 20 so calendar days. Off. You get weekends off? <laughs> no. So 20 days from the date of transfer is when that money has to be paid. Okay, 20 calendar days. So you do not get weekends off. Correct. Okay. All right. Um, now let's just, you know, make this incredibly visual. So the person who is responsible for sending this, getting this in the hands of the Internal Revenue Service is the buyer. Mm-hmm. And the citizenship, whatever, of the buyer is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter if the person next door has lived in Florida their whole life or the, uh, you know, the uh, 
the Swiss resident is coming over, you know, to invest in U.S. real estate. Either way. Now, now, how do they actually do that? Okay, like how's somebody supposed to know about this? This strikes me as one more sort of gotcha kind of thing where I know it's been around forever, but, you know, is it your experience that everybody knows about this? No, they don't know. The The buyers literally don't know. Um, I wish that there was a public service announcement um, <laughs> where, you know, our government did a better job of, notifying buyers that they have a job to do. Um, I wish that it was maybe part of the real estate um, industry that they would have to sign some sort of notification that they received, you know, some, some instruction on what they need to do, but they really don't. The buyers really don't have I any clue. That, and I'm asking this partly. So I listened to uh, <laughs> somebody rather. Uh, I either remember or have a distinct impression that in that podcast, you said that there's no rule requiring Florida real estate agents to give information on this. Is that, is that really correct? Um, I don't, I don't remember um, saying that, but um, there are different contracts that are used throughout the country. Right. Um, and even different contracts, Per, per state and even within a state, different contracts based on territory. So, you know, like in Florida, for example, we um, we use different kinds of contracts, but there's the standard far bar contract that, um, excuse me, that does a really good job outlining FERPTA in it, in my opinion. I've seen a lot of contracts and some contracts across the country don't even mention FERPTA at all. Like, um, but in your contract, you know, put together by the real estate industry. Correct. Or, by the, by the you know, Florida Association of Realtors. Wow. That is, that is amazing to me, actually, that, you know, that there can be now, of course, uh, what if you have two private, a private buyer and a private seller though? I mean, doesn't that really compound the chances of nobody knowing about this? It does, although I would say that a majority of private sales still are facilitated by either a, a closing agent, a title company, a closing attorney. And so as long as the person that's handling the transaction has some knowledge in regards to it, um, it does get picked up. Um, but if you were just doing a sale you know, from buyer A to buyer B and they weren't going to use an attorney, um, or they weren't going to use a title company to do the closing, then unless that buyer had knowledge that he needed to withhold, I don't know that he would wow. know to do that. That, that, is, that is really a trap for the unwary, isn't it? Absolutely. So for the unwary and, and the people that just don't care to know. Yeah, right. So, but I mean, a situation like that, the Canadian seller walks off with a full hundred thousand and the buyer who doesn't comply essentially is on the hook for the tax and penalties, right? Yeah, there's a publication, um, publication 519, um, that talks about um, withholding against non-resident, non-residents. And there's a paragraph in there under the sale of real property. The very first paragraph says, if you, you know, if you make a purchase, you are required to determine if your seller is foreign or not, because if you don't and you're wrong, you could be liable for the tax. So unless people know, so look at <laughs> publication 519. Um, 
I don't know where else that it says that. Well, publication 519 is a publication for non-resident aliens. Um, I don't know why, say, a U.S. citizen uh, buyer who was not a non-resident alien would look at that. But, um, you know, it's there. And by the way, uh, Canada has an almost identical thing. Okay. It's right. Like higher rate of withholding but this principle is you know well entrenched i mean there's no question about that okay so let's assume compliance and i apologize it's publication 515 okay a publication 515 what's the title of that publication it is withholding of tax on non-resident aliens and foreign entities okay publication 515 and well i'll get that link into the description of this okay all right, so now that now let's assume for a minute that everything goes as it's supposed to, and that um, you know we'll stay with my simple-minded example, and that the uh, the government gets its fifteen thousand. Um, now it seems to me there's two kinds of buyers: uh, resident citizens and non-resident aliens. I guess in either case, they need to file a tax return to get a refund if a refund is appropriate or account for it somehow in their U.S. tax return if they're a U.S. resident? Yeah, I think you meant to say there's two kinds of sellers, right? I think I heard you say two kinds of buyers. Were you talking about the withholding yeah, agents? Yeah, two kinds of sellers. Yeah, yeah sorry, okay. two kinds of sellers. Yeah, so there's uh, only two categories of taxpayers here in the U.S. You're either a U.S. person or you're a foreign person. And so um, if you're a foreign person, then yes, um, the, the FERPTO applies, the 15% is withheld, it gets sent to the IRS. Eventually, they'll get to a point where they'll um, mail out a receipt back to that seller for the withholding, but only if that foreign seller has a U.S. tax filing number, such as a social security number or an ITIN. And um, if they have what they need, then our government will issue a receipt for the withholding, and then that foreign person can go and file a tax return, and now they've got proof of the of the withholding that was paid on their account. Okay, so uh, on the closing, 85,000 goes to the seller, 15,000 goes to the IRS, the seller non-resident alien files a 1040NR <laughs> to settle up one way or the other. Okay. Correct. So 1040NR is a non-resident alien return and to file that they either need a social security number, which they probably don't have, or they have to apply for an I-10. Correct. Okay. Do you help them file this type of return? I do. Okay. How do they get an I-10 if they don't have an I-10? Um, well, there's a formal application process. Um, an ITIN number stands, ITIN stands for Individual Tax Identification Number, and it is reserved for um, tax filing purposes for people that aren't eligible for a social security number here. You, I would be, you'd be surprised how many foreigners have social security numbers for whatever reason. Some of them are, you know, receiving social security benefits, but, you know, they're still non-residents at, at the time of sale. So, um, well, they, the they were processes States at one point is why they have it. Correct. So it's a, an alarming number, like a shocking number of, of people have, have socials actually. But, um, when we do need to apply for an ITIN number, the process is very formal. So there's about 13 different reasons that our government gives us to apply for this number. And once you pick the reason, you have to settle. Uh, once you settle on a reason, you have to provide the proof documentation in your application that goes with that 
reason for applying. Um, um, yeah, so filing a tax return. Okay. You know, this filing a tax return. So anytime that you're applying for an ITIN number for for another reason besides filing a tax return, it's called it, it's considered an exception. Um, and so needing an ITIN number because of the FERPTA withholding is an exception. Um, it's one of the reasons that you can get an ITIN number. So um, for example, if you're applying because of the FERPTA, then, you know, you'd have to provide copies of the, the tax forms that are prepared and sent to the IRS and a copy of the settlement statement or a copy of the real estate contract. Our government wants proof that um, a sale took place. And that's really why you need this number. Wow. I would imagine there's a lot of people who just don't bother. Times, I mean, um, usually the people that don't bother um, are selling a property at such a low, low amount that the withholding is just insignificant to them or that the cost of services, you know, so like if you hire me to apply for an ITIN and prepare the forms and file the tax return, I have a fee for that. And um, sometimes people compare the cost of going through this process to the withholding and you know there it's just not a yeah it doesn't make sense i'm the aggravation i mean you know i i've never uh, obviously you know applied for one of these things myself but i've heard all kinds of horror stories about you know just how bureaucratic it is and everything so so yeah, I, about I would, not being able to get the money right away well yeah i mean that's a problem but if it's not just the united states canada has this and i would be shocked if you know these other first world democracies didn't have it as well right okay all right so let's say then somebody manages that and they get there now you know we talk about filing a return would you comment on how the gain is taxed in other words there's for non-resident aliens i understand there's there's fdap 30 percent withholding Subject to a treaty and like effectively connected income that's graduated rates, which is this? Effectively connected income. Okay. So give me, can you walk me through the example here? Let's say then the only income would be, we're looking at profit. We're looking at sale price, less cost. Mm -hmm. yep. So um, let me just like walk through. Let's say a fifty thousand. Let's say a purchase price of fifty thousand, a sale of a hundred thousand. The IRS has fifteen thousand. How would that actually work in very simple terms on the tax return? Yep. So um, we separate our gain um, in the United States into two categories. We have short-term gain and long-term gain. And so the vesting period, however long the property was owned, determines whether it's taxed as ordinary income or long-term gain. So let's say in this example, you've owned the property for a couple of years, you paid $50,000 for it, you're selling it for $100,000. So you have a $50,000 gain, but on that we get to reduce the, we get to reduce it by the selling expenses. So now let's say you're down to, you know, a $40,000 profit, right? If you look at our tax rates for 2023, and you look at specifically the long-term gain tax brackets, right? Because when you when you have when you carry a property, an investment property for longer than a year and one day, and it falls into the long-term gain category, you get preferential tax brackets, you know, tax right. rates. And so right now for 2023, um, the first forty-four thousand six hundred and twenty-five dollars is taxed at zero. Oh, so so this person would get a fifteen thousand dollar refund. 
<laughs> basically. So if I take $100,000, you know, minus real estate commission and settlement fees, realistically, which would be around $7,500, minus their initial investment of $50,000, they're at $42,500. So it's below the threshold for owing any long-term, any capital gains tax in the United States. And they would get a full refund of their $15,000 in this scenario that we're talking about. Very interesting. So it's it's almost certainly in their interest to hire you or somebody like you to do that. Absolutely. It's any, I always recommend, you know, I, I use the um, the analogy of, you know, a, a doctor. You know, if, if, if my head was hurting and I needed brain surgery, I wouldn't go to a heart surgeon. I wouldn't go to a family you know, doctor for that every, it's a very specialized type of thing. And it's not even, it's not even specialized in the sense of um, the, like the, the technical taxation. No, it's not it. complicated. It's just a niche area. Yeah. Yeah. It's like just stuff, right? Yeah. And this, this, this particular process, you know, sending the money in and, you know, getting the receipt and filing the tax return and the IRS, they've got different branches and different departments that, are working together, but also don't communicate. And, and it's so common for um, the money to get misplaced. It's so common for it to be tagged to the wrong accounting period. You know, if a property sells in May of 2022, but they've got the credit in April of 2022, when that seller goes to file the tax return, they're only going to look in one place for, for that credit. And if it's not there, it's just not there. And so they just kind of move on. Well, someone has to go in and they have to say, hey, you've got this money in the wrong spot. So it's not even the 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 technical taxation part of it. It's it's understanding the process and knowing how oh, to get things back on track. And knowing and knowing who 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 kind of you know makes that flow at the IRS, I guess, right? Right. Okay. So so you so you're doing that. Now, you know, a moment ago you said that, all right, so if you own it for a year and a day, uh, it's long-term capital gain. Can we use the same example, okay? And let's say, uh, you know, it's effectively connected income. Is mm -hmm. it just the rate of taxation that's different if tax is owing, or does that change the equation at all? I'm so sorry, I couldn't hear that last question. Okay, so if it's, it, what, what what would happen, okay? Would there is there any difference in the result if it's owned for less than a year? Absolutely. Okay, can you take me through that? Yeah, sure. So, um, if it's owned for less than a year, it's just considered ordinary. It's short-term gain, so it's taxed like ordinary income at whatever the tax brackets are. Just becomes part of your overall income, and so you so, don't get four thousand. No, you don't. you don't get any portion taxed at zero. All right. So I suppose one piece of extremely practical advice, if you didn't, you know, weren't interested in anything else in this conversation, would be make sure you hold it for at least a year and a day, right? <laughs> make sure, make sure you hold it at least a year and a day. So, you know, a, a, like a, a very realistic scenario with um, some of our Canadian investors is they own multiple properties. You know, sometimes they have a couple um, just vacant land, you know, unimproved land. Sometimes they have you know, a house that they rent out. Sometimes they have a house that they just use for their family. They have houses in different places. And so one practical application would be, um, you know, to obviously work with a tax advisor because everyone's scenario is a little bit different. But um, if you're not in a hurry to sell these things, maybe spread them out over time so that you can take advantage of that, um, that e exemption, if you will, that portion that's taxed at zero, um, because that's per person per year. 
it's not like a one-time thing or, you know, a lifetime situation. It's just every year. Very, very interesting. Now, um, so these people live in Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but Canada has a rather brutal and repressive tax regime. Um, <laughs> the tax is absolutely everything, including capital gains. Mm -hmm. So let's say that uh, our Canadian seller does end up paying the U.S. something. Presumably, mm -hmm. um, so you're telling them that when they file their Canadian taxes, they would get a credit for the U.S. tax paid in Canada. Would that be right? That is correct. Okay. Do you any any elaboration on that you'd like to make, or is the principle good enough? I mean, there's the way that. Canada taxes capital gain is is so different from ours. First of all, you guys don't get any, you know, you don't get a portion of it taxed at zero, although they do. Um, I told you it was repressive taxation in Canada. <laughs> but they also don't tax you on the whole amount. So, um, and I, I think maybe there's some different scenarios. Obviously, I'm not an expert in Canadian taxation by any means. Um, they, they tax half the gain. Okay, half the gain. Half so, the gain. So they tax half the gain. Um, but also. Scenario, let's say 100 sale purchase 50 profit 50 they tax 25 right and then are they taxed at um just whatever their their natural tax bracket is yeah, right yeah it's thrown in their return is just uh you know income that's it yeah so it just gets thrown into the the bucket with everything else so in other so words it's it's twenty five thousand dollars of additional income if you're already a high you know, right I mean, and then, and then you do get um, a tax credit for the actual tax that you pay here, not the withholding tax. So you don't get credit for the $15,000 that was withheld only for the portion that you would owe. So in our scenario, that Canadian didn't actually pay any tax to the U.S. government. He got a full refund of that $15,000. But if he did owe tax, then he'd get a credit. Now, the other thing, too, um, that you have to remember is that um, the exchange rate, the gain that that Canadian, you know, if they bought it here and they sold it here, they're also going to pay capital gains on the difference that the exchange brought them. That's part yeah, of their capital okay, gains well, as well. You know, in Canada, obviously they think in Canadian dollars. So, you know, you sell at 50 US, sorry, you buy at 50 US, you do the exchange rate on that day and that would tell you what the cost in Canada was. And you sell at a hundred, you look at the exchange, you know, I mean, you know, you got to know a lot of arithmetic to do this stuff, right? <laughs> Yeah. All right. So, you know, which is, which is interesting. All right. So, you know, I, I'm not at all surprised. I think it's been a very useful, interesting, and practical discussion. I thank you for this, but I'm not at all surprised that there's not wide knowledge of this. Uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, I, you know, I rarely do I hear people, you know, even talk about this other than at continuing at legal things, you know, that, that's where you're sure to see this stuff. Otherwise, not so much. Well, I have a theory on that. And I think, um, like I said, you know, I've been around the real estate industry for, I mean, since I was 18 years old and um, back then. <laughs> You know, the real estate market wasn't where it was, you know, it, it wasn't anywhere near where it is today. And so a lot of the transactions by foreign sellers um, would fall under the exception. So, you know, there's this exception that the sale price is $300,000 or less and the buyer's going to 
you know, makes a, a, a sworn statement that the property is going to be used by them primarily for personal use for a certain amount of time during the year, um, right. then the, with, the withholding is waived. And so, um, you know, up until the last couple of years, you were still able to buy a lot of real estate for under $300,000. And so it just wasn't as common or as, I don't want to use the word popular, but it just wasn't as common um, up until I would say maybe the last seven or eight years. Yeah, um, there's a floor of 300000 on this. Say that oh, again. So there's, there's a minimum uh, sale price of 300000 for this to kick in. Is that correct? Um, it's no, it's I mean, it's not automatic. It's just it's one of the factors in 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 one of the exceptions. So, you know, FERPTA applies at 15 percent on on all real estate, um, regardless of the price. It's just if the exception does fit the bill, then it can be waived or it can be reduced. Um, and for it to be waived, it. 300,000 is, is the, uh, the cutoff for that, but it's on a, on a property that's like habitable. So it's not available on vacant land or RV pads or boat docks or, you know, parking spaces or anything like that. It has to be habitable by the buyer and they have to buy it in a certain way. It has to be titled in their own individual name. So it's not automatic. But it is another example of how inflation, uh, you know, meaning, you know, as prices go up, you know, right. increase tax complexity and bureaucracy. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. I'm in Cape Coral and I there's you I don't think you can buy maybe a condo but you can't buy a house for under $300,000 here. So anytime a property is sold by, you know, a Canadian or a German or you know by a foreign person it's like FERPTA is going to apply every single time. Yeah. Where before it, it probably didn't apply because of the exception. People surprised to hear this generally or Um Mostly buyers. Buyers are really surprised because they're like, oh, I've bought so much. I've bought and sold so many, you know, I've bought and sold so much real estate in the past. I've never heard of this. And it's like, OK, well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that. But it's real and it's a thing and it's been around since the 80s. And, you know, sellers are um, they're not surprised by it. They they understand it. Um, of course, they try everything they can to get out of it. You know, the the three main questions I hear all the time are, do I really have to do this? How much is it going to cost me? And when do I get my money back? Um, you know, because, you know, they want to be creative and they want to set up structures and they want to have LLCs or LLPs or they want, you know, they want to do all these things to try to avoid it. All these costly, um, things, all these costly interventions that just make life right. work. Um, non-resident aliens, they're all non-resident. Are they subject to the 3.8 Obamacare surtax? No. Okay. So that's an important, important thing to keep in mind as well on this yeah interesting all right well listen this has been a, a really really great practical discussion thank you very much for it um i'd like you to do two things uh first is uh add anything you think should be added and the second is by all means get your contact information in there because even people who would need an i-10 you could do that for them too right yeah absolutely so um my preferred approach is to work with people from a very um, like full service, full service model, helping them apply for their tax numbers, preparing the forms for their closing, helping them um, with their tax returns, because I've already got all the information, right? So it's just a matter of, of putting it all together. So that's my that's my preferred approach is to to help with help from start to finish. But you know, I realize that that's always not the case. And sometimes they don't need me to provide any services. They just want to, 
you know, use me as a soundboard and kind of run some ideas. And I'm open to that too. So I'm, I'm not a all or nothing kind of person. I just want to do whatever is necessary to help that, that seller, you know, feel comfortable about what's to come. Right. Um, I guess the only thing I really want to say is um, if you're thinking about selling, uh, regardless of the selling price, regardless of how long you've had the property, if you're thinking about selling um, to reach out to me or somebody like me that you can get all your ducks in a row, right? You want to know what your options are before you have to sign that contract. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be talked about beforehand. There's a lot of options um, that you have that if you can talk about them in the beginning and get them sorted out and even make it a condition of the contract um, that will give you the upper hand in, in how you want to proceed. But if you don't do the legwork now, if you don't start getting ready, if you don't start pulling together your, you know, your list of improvements and going through your records and trying to figure out what kinds of things can be used to offset the gain, it's just not something that you want to do at the last minute. So if you're thinking about selling, just get yourself ready to, you know, learn about the process and, and the things that you can start doing now um, to ready yourself so that when a buyer comes, the right buyer comes that you've got all your ducks in a row and you're ready to go. That would be you, my suggestion. You also help the uh, the buyers get the money in the hands of the Internal Revenue Service. I gather there must be a procedure for that. Obviously, the IRS considers the buyer the withholding agent, so they make them the responsible party. But from a practical point of view, you know, the buyer is sending their money to this this neutral third party that's handling this closing, whether it be a title company or an attorney. And so, once the buyer sends the money to the to that escrow agent, um, it gets dispersed. So sometimes they'll just send it right to the IRS. Sometimes they send it to me so that I can send it to the IRS. Sometimes they make the buyer send it. You know, every company is a little bit different how they handle that process. And so, um, but yes, can I help, can I help buyers? The answer is yes. Yeah, I would think that that's something that needs to be understood very early on, given that we have 20 days, you know, to exactly. do that. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is really great stuff. So I'm speaking with Julie Lepore, and her website is Total Ferpta. And it does sound like total after this discussion. I think <laughs> I, I think justify the word in your domain name. Totalferpta.com, T-O-T-A-L-F-I-R-P-T-A.com. Perfect. Have I got that right? You 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 sound you sound amazing. Sounds amazing. All right, all right. Uh, this is great. Any final last words? Maybe we can pick this up, pick this up on some kind of topic down the road, but this has been wonderful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay.